people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman, anxiously awaiting Christmas. This really is my favorite time of year. I, 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 I love this. Now, I'm in northwest Ohio, and we have 60-degree weather here, so it's uh, very un-Christmas-like and un-Northwest Ohio-like, but uh, I'll take it. Every day of this is a day closer to spring. Uh, our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook. Go to our Facebook and like us if you like. See what we put on there every day and uh, communicate with us. Give us uh, uh, an email or a, a message as to what you'd like to see me talk about or comments on what we've been talking about. I think the, the big story this week, big story this week, has uh, continued uh, from the San Bernardino terrorist attack. We finally got the the powers that be to, uh, to admit that this was uh, uh, radical Islamists and that we can classify it a terrorist attack. But in normal fashion of politicians, never letting a good crisis go to waste, it's all about guns, all about gun control and uh, assault rifles and access to guns, that kind of stuff. Now, what I look for is a few keywords and phrases. By the way, I, I think the Second Amendment is probably one of the most important amendments to the economy. You take away the Second Amendment. You take away your ability to defend and protect yourself. Uh, there is no economy. It's just just no economy. So I think it's it's absolutely critical. And these politicians jump all over this to get power. They know, they know any law they pass wouldn't have made any difference in the attack in San Bernardino. Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she came right out and said, House Minority Leader, came right out and said, California gun laws didn't stop terrorists so that's why we need a national gun law. Now, California has some of the strictest gun laws in the United States. The thing that people miss, some people miss, is where this happened was a gun-free zone. The security guard in the building didn't have a gun. Now... The thing that, that's happening and, and what's going to come about because of this is background checks at gun shows. They call that a loophole. It's not really a loophole. And uh, disallowing people on the no-fly list to get a gun. 
Now, the reason the no-fly list really bothers me, Nancy Pelosi, again, wants uh, to quote her again, the most egregious and one of the American people, and one that the American people understand clearly among pending gun legislation is that if you are on the FBI no-fly watch list, that it should prevent you from buying a gun. Now, the problem I have with that is once you're on the no-fly list, it's up to you to get off from it. So if the FBI puts you on a no-fly list accidentally, it's up to you to sue them to prove your case to get back off. It wouldn't surprise me if some FBI person or some politician said, you know, a conservative talk show host like me, uh, we don't want them flying around the country. We'll put them on a no-fly list and they'll never be able to buy another gun. In fact, they're probably dangerous enough. We should go to their house and confiscate the guns that they have. That's the problem I have. And the, the operative phrase out there is, all people understand it only makes sense to do this. Whenever you hear politicians say those kind of words, uh, you need to run and hide. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about the militarization of our police departments. And, and one of the few things that President Obama did that I agree with uh, is in January uh, of this year, um, President Obama signed an executive order uh, stopping police departments from around the country getting surplus equipment, guns, ammunition uh, from the government. So, I mean, we've talked about this. We, we've seen police departments, and they look like soldiers. They look like an invading force. They got rocket launchers. They got grenade launchers. They got armored vehicles going down our streets. And that's just wrong. That That's not the community I want to live in. And naturally, several police departments are using San Bernardino to try and get that stuff back. Now, it's free stuff. That's the key. Some of these police departments, um, they said now face limits on getting explosives, riot gear, and wheeled armored or tactical vehicles. That's wrong. There's nothing stopping them from getting that. What the executive order did is stop them from getting it for free on the taxpayer dime. Now, the, the uh, I think it's Ed Mullins, the president of New York Police Department's Sergeant's Benevolent Association, said, sadly, the rank-and-file patrol members of the New York Police Department will be amongst the first to respond and are not equipped with assault rifles or adequate ballistic protection. This is reminiscent of the days of sending canaries into coal mines. Let me help you, okay? One, the police are not first responders. You and I are. Those people that were in that building, they're the first responders. The fact is, they were in a gun-free zone, and as Mark Levin has said, there's no such thing as a gun-free zone. 
They're simply an unarmed victim zone. And that's why these these people choose that. It's because they know nobody will have gun. Do you need an assault rifle to adequately get rid of, take down, prevent someone with an assault rifle from using it? No. I guarantee you, guarantee you, that if anybody in that room would have had any type of gun, and I'm talking almost, almost, just to make the point, a BB gun on up, that would have stopped or prevented, slowed down, caused pause, something, something. But the fact is, nobody was able to defend themselves in any shape or form, and that's what made it worse. If everybody in that room would have had a gun, I guarantee you those people wouldn't have walked in there. If one person would have had a gun, I guarantee you it probably would have made a difference. Now, we don't know. I understand that. Don't know. You can't uh, go back in time and, and replay it. But the fact that no one had a weapon, no one was able to defend themselves, it's absolute that uh, the killers were able to do whatever they wanted. They reloaded their guns, they shot up a bunch of people, and uh, got out of there and drove away like it was a Sunday afternoon drive. Just absolutely incredible to me. Governor of Connecticut just signed an order this week banning gun sales to American on the watch list. Mark my words. See how that goes. You're going to get people that want to buy guns that are on that list by mistake. And they'll end up suing Connecticut. But it only makes sense. Everybody knows this. Absolutely is logical and only makes sense. Last week, we spent a little time talking about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, including the Chinese yuan in their SDRs. Well, Christine Lagarde had some motivation for doing that, and looks like the motivation is starting to cause a little bit of action in China. We'll take a look at that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. A couple weeks ago, the IMF came out and said that uh, they're going to allow the Chinese yuan to be part of the currencies that make up the special drawing rights. Now, the soonest that will happen will be October 2016, so that's a ways away. And many pundits out there uh, use this as one more apocalyptic sign that the U.S. dollar is no longer going to be the world's reserve currency and China is going to take over the world and uh, we're going to be in big trouble. And we talked about that. I'm not going to spend any more time talking about that. Um, I don't believe that for an instant and uh, not really concerned about the Chinese being included in SDRs. There's, there's other currencies. The euro's in there the British pound and the Japanese yen, in addition to the uh, dollar. 
and none of that has affected the dominance of the uh, United States dollar as a world's reserve currency. Neither will this. Neither will this. The the U.S. dollar has gotten about 10% stronger uh, this year because there's so much unrest, so much fluctuation in the world that the dollar is the most stable. Uh, stable government, no matter how uh, undesirable that may be to us, we do have a stable government and the strength of the military. We have a very, very strong military. Now, what's happened is what, what Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, indicated was she wanted to include the yuan, wanted to tell China that the yuan could be included next year in order to motivate China to start implementing monetary reforms. And this last week, uh, they started to do some of that. The the important thing, if the yuan is going to be included in SDRs, in special drawing rights, the most critical aspect of that is that the yuan has to be free-floating, what they call a clear float, in the global economy. It cannot be manipulated by the Chinese government. Now, you can make the case that everybody manipulates their currency, and that is absolutely true, but not to the extent that China manipulates theirs. So they've started to allow some devaluation in the yuan. That makes our dollar stronger against the one, and it makes their exports cheaper. Okay, a strong economy, uh, I'm sorry, a strong currency makes imports uh, cheaper. A weaker currency makes exports cheaper. Now, what's happening? You've seen uh, essentially the roller coaster ride in our market recently. And that's caused by China, partially caused by China, in, in what we would call uh, an exportation of deflation. In other words, by having their currency go down in value, they are making the commodities that they produce cheaper on the world market. Iron is down 46% for the year. Uh, steel way down in price, copper, way down in price, Uh, oil is way down in price, and that's for a different reason. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Um, But that, that is what's causing a lot of our volatility in our stock market is the devaluation of underlying currencies. We've seen what the price of oil coming down more than 50% in the last year, 16 months. Um, We've seen what that's done to many companies. And these companies having a tough time with cash flow. You couple that with so far, so far it's been a warm winter. So the demand for energy, natural gas, fuel oil, that kind of stuff to heat our homes is a lot less than it was a year ago. If you remember a year ago, it was colder than heck right now. I mean, we had cold, cold weather in November and December. 
And this year, uh, not so much. It's been uh, very mild uh, so far this year. But in addition to fuel, all imports coming into this country are cheaper. Food, uh, beverages, capital goods, automotive vehicles, automotive parts, all of those are cheaper. And that that keeps our inflation down and, and brings in a, a, uh, a deflation into the overall economy. Now, for you and me, going out buying stuff like gasoline for our cars and, and uh, um, some of the goods and products we buy, that makes them cheaper. I have not seen it personally in food. Um, uh, food is has been uh, reflecting a lot of inflation, but it's being offset by other things in the economy. Now, the reason China is able to do this is very simple. Uh, they're communists. They, they keep production going no matter what the price because those goods and services that the Chinese economy produces are not really subject to the market. They are supported in their prices by the government. So a normal situation where we would have overcapacity, producing too much, the government or the, the economy would cut back on that. But that's not the case in China. So it's it's causing some ripple effects around the world, and some of it good, some of it not so good. We just have to be smart on how we take advantage of it and how we make money from it. And, and there are definitely ways of making money from it. Up next, Brian Kilmeade will be joining me. If you remember him, he is on Fox and Friends every morning on Fox. Got a new book out called Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. We'll talk to him next about his latest book. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Brian Kilmeade. He's author of the book Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, The Forgotten War That Changed American History, New York Times bestseller. Previous uh, book that was a bestseller was George Washington and the Secret Six. He, uh, You might know him best as he's co-host of Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends, uh, number one morning cable news show. Uh, every morning on Fox News, and he's also the host of Kill Me and Friends, a nationally syndicated radio show on Fox News Radio. Brian, uh, thanks for joining me. Welcome to An Economy One. Hey, thank you very much. I look forward to it. I have to tell you, I picked up your book, and it reads more like a suspense novel than it does a nonfiction historical book. I, I literally couldn't put it down. I read the entire book in just two sittings. Wow, I, I, that's uh, the ultimate compliment. I mean, my goal was to make it that people enjoy American history. And with Don, we tried to do this two times in a row, mm -hmm. and we try to 
bringing the big names with Jefferson, but when you close it, you're thinking about other names that have pretty much gone out, gone down outside, you go down for the count outside military circles like William Eaton, Stephen Decatur, and Edward Preble. But right. hopefully, people realize that everyday Americans were doing extraordinary things. You know, set the scene for us a little bit. Uh, who are the Tripoli Pirates? What uh, what happened that created the the significance for the United States at the time? I mean, we were a young country. We just want to get our economy on its feet. We're buried in war debt, so we need the Mediterranean to go down in international waters. And it turns out these, these countries of Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Tripoli were standing in our way. They, they demanded money or else they were going to take the crew and enslave the crew and, and take the cargo and take the ships. And they hit uh, hundreds of ships and 700 of our guys. We finally put our foot down and started fighting them. Uh, and they were Islamic extremists. They were they were Muslims back then, but they were using the Koran as an excuse to attack us. And I, as you know, since you read it, I mean, people were astounded to find out that Jefferson was dealing with the same thing that George Bush and Barack Obama were dealing with, and right. so was John Adams, great Americans who had totally different uh, ideas on how to fight the mm-hmm. Islamic extremist threat. They knew it had to be confronted. They knew they didn't <laughs> want to take extortion payments, but everybody else was making the payments, like Britain, France, Spain, Norway. Right. They were doing it, but we didn't want it. Plus, we didn't have the money, nor Navy, to stick up for ourselves. You know, one of the things that hit me right out of the gate, right at the beginning of the book, you talk about the Tripolian envoy to uh, Great Britain, and he's justifying taking the ships, enslaving the men, extorting money, because it's it's written in the Koran that it's okay to do this to non-believers. That was, that was really a, a hard concept for honorable men like Jefferson at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was a sense that when you first started dealing with him, they were going to be able to cut a deal. They took the Betsy, they took the Maria, they took the Dolphin. They had our crew hostage. America, as young as we were, was still traumatized, much like 1979 when a similar thing happened. Mm-hmm. So we sent some of our guys over there to negotiate. Finally, Adams, who's stationed over in, in London, said, I'm just going to go see this guy. And sure enough, he couldn't wait to see us. He's like, tell me about your country. Tell me what it's about. Yeah, listen, um, I'm sorry we had this misunderstanding. Maybe we can work it out. So if you would just write this check, we'd be fine. And the check was the money was more than Britain was paying, Spain, France, everybody was paying. We said we didn't have it. Right. So Jefferson said, this is crazy. Why are we paying this? Let's fight them. And Adam says, essentially, do you see the look in their eye? We're going to have to fight them. If we fight, we're going to have to fight them forever. They're not going to quit. Right. And America doesn't have the stomach for a long war. And that sets the scene where before 1812, after the revolution, trying to stay out of major conflicts, but also our characters being tested, almost like the new kid in school is going to get pushed and prodded until they find out what he's made out of. Jefferson picked that up, even though he's not known as a fighter. Adams didn't or did and decided to ignore it. And that was was pretty clear. And, you know, thanks to George Washington, we built the Navy. But George Washington also wrote a huge check of $800,000 just to get our guys out in 1795. So they kept some of these people for over 10 years, and it was brutal. When they finally got out, we had the conflict again even though the deal was signed. So when Jefferson takes over, he just says, I'm not making the payments, and I know they're going to declare war on us, but we're going to fight him. Yeah. And it took a while, it took five years, but we finally beat him down, took him on, and we thought we had a complete victory in 1806, but we had to go back again in 1815. And I think the reason why people are buying it is because, hope we did a compelling job, but more importantly, they say, I, I want to get some relevance to this war against radical Islam. What did our founding fathers deal with? How mm-hmm. new is this struggle, how unique is it? Yeah, and in reading through this, you know, President Jefferson, like you said, he, he really didn't want to fight, but eventually realized that 
that just showing force and using words and paying checks just isn't enough. Eventually, you got to take action. How difficult was that for Jefferson to convince Congress, to convince the American people? We, we got to go. We got to go fight and we may lose some some uh, treasure. We may lose some of our people. Yeah, as you know, uh, at first we didn't ask Congress, which is kind of bizarre. I mean, we have that problem now, but what about the guy that was part of the founding fathers and the construction of the Constitution? Mm-hmm. You know, Madison wrote most of it, but the Declaration of Independence and the spirit of which was all, you know, Jefferson and Adams and all these guys, and Madison and uh, John Hancock and all these people, they put together the Constitution. It's hard to violate it when, they, when the ink was fairly dry. So we sent our, our ships over there, but we said, don't fight unless you're shot at. Don't challenge unless you have to. The rules of engagement were suffocating. So he said, while I wait for Congress to come back, then I'm going to ask permission later, almost like Teddy Roosevelt would do in the turn of the next century uh-huh. after that. So then when we finally got the rules of engagement, then we had the wrong leaders. Then we finally got the right captains and lieutenants. Then we, got, then we really started taking the fight to them. And in the end, it just took uh, great fighters, a, reluct- uh, a stubbornness on our part, and our sense that we had to fight for our own integrity that brought us through. My, my guest is Brian Kilmeade. He's co-host of Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends and author of the New York Times bestseller, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, the Forgotten War that Changed American History. You know, one of my favorite people in your book, uh, which uh, ashamedly I didn't know about prior to uh, reading your book, is Stephen Decatur Jr. and his courage in destroying the Philadelphia, one of our own ships, so that the pirates couldn't keep it. And his honor, sense of duty, and bravery, we still see in our men and women in military today. Does it disappoint you that our our leadership today is is not what Washington, Jefferson, and, and Madison were back then? Well, I mean, you know, political leadership, yeah. Uh, but in terms of military leadership, we, and as right. you know, right. we have some phenomenal leaders, some selfless people that have put together the finest military campaign over the last 14 years you can imagine, even if we do below it politically. So I think that when, when you see the SEAL teamers and you see the Green Berets and uh, all the men and women, the fighting women in the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force, you feel like the, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, outside the Air Force, obviously. Right. You see the courage, the valor, who recoil when you try to give them compliments. They don't want the recognition. They're doing right. it for, uh, at a, at, for the guy next to them. And Stephen Decatur, you had this, uh, this Navy SEAL times 10, who leads a, a group of men dressed as if they're the people of the of Tripoli to board an American ship, uh, wipe out 23 of the crew members, and when they realized they couldn't take it, they blew it up. Right. And why was it important? William Bainbridge ran the ship aground. It was our finest vessel. They wanted to refit it and use it against us. Uh, Edward Preble said, Stephen Decatur, get you guys together. Here's your mission. Go make it happen. In the dead of night, they pull it off. And so great was it. Lord Admiral Nelson who was the finest commander of his day, the Patton, the MacArthur of his day, mm-hmm. said that this is um, uh, the, the, one of the finest operations of this generation. So, again, this brand-new country is catching everybody's attention. Right. But Tripoli wouldn't budge until we sent in a land war. And sadly, I think the parallels to today will be the same thing. Until we put people on the ground and threaten the leaders and let them know they will die, uh, they, they're not going to budge because they don't care about their people. Right. All right. Well, and that was... That was one of my next thoughts. William Eaton, he had to have been very frustrated because he wasn't allowed to finish his mission. I mean, he, he, he made deals. He got an army, moved over miles and miles of desert and wasn't able to finish. And, and that just reminded me of 
Saddam Hussein in Iraq and so much of what we have today, we, we need to let our our military finish the mission, don't you think? That's absolutely, and I see the parallel so abundantly clear. We do the surge, we pull it off, much like William Eaton goes in and pulls it off, and then we we leave. We leave before mm-hmm. the security was present, and we left. As soon as the, uh, the leader of Tripoli got nervous, he cut a deal. But we didn't cut the perfect deal. We still paid $60,000 to get our 300-plus guys out, right. which was top secret for a while. William Eaton was miles from Benghazi, wanted to take Tripoli and just show the whole world uh, the Barbary Coast and everybody else in the Ottoman Empire, man, this, this country's for real, and told Europe, you better not screw with us. Instead, we make history by taking Derna in two and a half hours after marching 500 miles with a, with a handful of Marines. But we don't make total history and get complete victory. And you can argue that William Eaton, who did this miraculous run, led it. Uh, he never recovered. He ended up dying of alcoholism in 1809. Well, and you quote him in there as saying, will nothing rouse my country? And... You know, it, it's kind of archaic language, but it, there are days when I have the same thought here. Will nothing rouse our country to, to stand up? In addition to not being able to, to finish uh, the mission, what, what lessons uh, can we take from this? Can our, our political leadership take from this that was your intent on this book? Well, here it is. When it comes to Islamic extremists, a show of force won't matter. Shock and awe doesn't matter because mm-hmm. they don't care about their people. They only care about their power, and they do believe, and they were written back then, that they go to paradise if they die. Hey, hey, go out there and be a martyr. Fantastic. These leaders just worry about their own welfare. Number two, you have to finish the job, and you have to be willing to fight to victory. They, don't, they only understand total victory. Remember, the, the intercepts coming out of Iraq, all the messages to al-Qaeda in Iraq was, we've lost. Get out. Don't come here. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've got to send a message. You've lost. Don't go to Syria. Don't go to Iraq. Do not go to Libya. We've lost. They have to experience losing. And that's what Jefferson's uh, exploit showed. And Madison had to finish the job because Jefferson didn't 100% fill it. Mm-hmm. So it was Madison who came back in 1815 and said, give us our guys back. Pay us money for our inconvenience. Sign this treaty saying that you're not going to uh, do this anymore. And let the whole world uh, prisoners out. And we also set a precedent let everybody know what kind of country you are. Because we were going to fight for it. And we were going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrific, terrific read. It's, uh, uh, like you said, I just couldn't put it down. You know, George Washington's Secret Six was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I think it just recently came out in paperback. Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates bestseller on the New York Times list. Is there another book on the drawing board that uh, you can tell us I mean, anything about? You know, I, I mean, I think there would be. Uh, I've been so busy touring around, and this weekend I'm going to uh, the Villages in the afternoon on Saturday, mm-hmm. and I'm going to uh, Tampa, Oaks a Million on Saturday, same day, and uh, we have all these events. I'm thinking about, after the holidays, looking at it. I just can't imagine. Uh, how I got, we got extremely lucky telling a story in American history that people care about that also is relevant to today, I'd have to find that rare combination because I don't want to let anybody down. Well, and, and I appreciate that. I don't think you could let us down. The style that you write in, you and Don, terrific. It's just, just fun to read, and it just flies by. You just get engrossed in it. Looking forward to that next well, thanks, book, man. and I always enjoy your work on, on Fox & Friends. We watch every day. Really appreciate your time today. And uh, this has been a real honor for me and our listeners, and I hope that uh, we can tap you on the shoulder again soon, Brian. 
Absolutely, and if anybody wants it personalized, it's, they send it to a bookstore near me, and able to do that on BrianKillMe.com. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Up next, we're going to talk about low oil prices and virtually an invisible group being affected. Somebody you might not think. That's right. Strippers. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. The price of oil, it just keeps coming down. The uh, supply of oil uh, keeps getting greater. And the yeah, I, guess, I guess it's no big secret now, uh, not that it ever was, but uh, people are assuming that it's, it's uh, factual. And that is that Saudi Arabia, uh, the largest producer of oil in the world, Saudi Arabia has allowed the price of oil to keep coming down um, in order to essentially damage or put out of business some of its competition and some of their enemies. So frackers in this country uh, have uh, been beaten up really, really bad. And not so much because the price of oil is down as much as the cash flow of those companies are not great enough to service their debt. They borrowed too much money to be in the fracking business because it was a, a gold mine, no pun intended. And they were able to borrow money like you wouldn't believe to keep poking holes in the ground and fracking and all kinds of equipment and rigs and uh, that kind of stuff because the price was so high. Well, Saudi Arabia doesn't like that. They didn't like the United States jockeying back and forth with them as the number one producer of oil in the world. So they have kept up producing oil at a high rate, adding to the world's glut of oil, and therefore driving the price down. The other reason Saudi Arabia is interested in doing this is it's going to financially kill some of their enemies' economy, mainly Iran. So they want to have Iran uh, essentially starve to death on their oil. Even with the sanctions coming off from us, it's still going to strangle them a little bit. Venezuela is, uh, they're dead. They just haven't been buried in the ground yet. I mean, their economy has been destroyed, partially because of the price of oil, more so because of their their political leadership uh, just destroying their economy. But one sector I wanted to touch on, one sector uh, is being drastically hit that nobody talks about, and that is strippers. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, and you need to change your thinking. It's not the strippers that are on uh, the stage and, and use a pole. I know many of you are rationalizing, okay, I can understand that, price oil down, fewer oil workers, oil workers go to strip clubs, and uh, the strippers are suffering. Not at all. A stripper is a small operator of older oil wells that frequently produce less than five barrels a day. So when a company comes in, pokes a hole in the ground, draws out the oil, once that, that 
the easy oil is gone, they pull up their rig and they, they leave. Well, that's when a stripper comes in. A stripper comes in, puts down a rig, and starts drawing off the, the, the remainder of that oil in that well in very small quantities. So at five barrels a day at $100 a barrel, that's $500 a day, 30 days, 15000 bucks. Costs two to three thousand dollars a month to run the operation. Um, a stripper can make money on a older well at forty dollars a barrel. Not so much. Strippers only get uh, about eighty percent of the price of a barrel of oil because they have to spend more in transportation. So they give up 5 to $10 a barrel in transportation costs after they bring that barrel of oil up to the surface. So if they're doing five barrels a day at $30 a barrel, that's $150 a day, 30 days, 4500 a month, 3000 a month in expenses, it's just not worth it. Now the interesting thing is there's four hundred and ten thousand of them in the united states and they represent over 11 percent of u.s oil output so these strippers are very very important to the oil market and to our economy thousands of people are employed by these people and uh, it, it takes a resource uh, out of the ground that would just normally sit there and not be used. So I wanted to point that out because it's, you know, everybody looks at Exxon and BP and all these big companies, ConocoPhillips, and says, oh, my goodness, it's it's really affecting them because they're doing millions and millions of barrels a day around the world. But the fact is the small operator still is the backbone of this country, still is the one creating the jobs and adding to the the strength and health of the economy. And as the price goes down like this, um, they suffer probably the most. Once a stripper goes out of business, once he or she decides, ah, it's not worth it to pull up any more oil or gas out of this well, rarely, rarely does it ever open again. So once it's shut... It's shut. And uh, now, will that help the situation in the long term? Maybe cut off some of the supply. I don't think it'll cut off enough to make much of a difference to you and I anytime in the near future or to the companies. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 